Whether you're taking a rip down the lease road in your jacked-up truck or flying first class to Houston, Texas, it's time to sit back and relax for another exciting episode of Oil & Gas Onshore. This episode is brought to you by Tendeka, a global specialist in advanced completions and production solutions for the oil and gas industry. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, Justin Gauthier. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm here in the Woodlands in the Marriott with Mr. Ian Myers, VP of Operations at Clear Creek Resources out of Denver. Ian, thanks for coming on the show, my man. Yeah, thanks for having me, buddy. No worries. When did you get into Houston? You flew in... Actually, I saw you were hunting, so yeah. you were out in Junction, right? No, yeah. We came down early for the weekend, went to hunt in Junction, shot a big old access buck, and then we drove over yesterday and kind of sailing into the conference, which runs, you know, basically today through Thursday. Okay. So you guys primarily came down for the conference. Which conference is this? The Hydraulic Fracturing Conference. It's the big SPE conference. It's really good networking. I really think it's valuable to talk to people outside your base and hear what they're doing. I think you can always learn something from what other people are doing in a different neck of the woods. And, you know, a lot of people are presenting white papers, which we've kind of leveraged a lot of white papers for our completion design. So it's always good to hear the latest and greatest of what people are doing. Right. No, that's good. I mean, a lot of these conferences, honestly, for guys like myself, as a vendor, sometimes you come here and you get a bunch of students that come and it's a lot of business card handing out. But where the value adds is, like you said, the white papers. I've been involved with, you know, presentations and being able to see our company present. It really helps. Just the amount of information that you can gain from these things is great. But yeah, it's great, man. It's awesome that we actually were able to see each other while you're down here. I know you fly in and out and we spent quite a bit of time in Denver together. So I'm glad we got the opportunity to sit here. Before we really get started, so did you watch the Super Bowl last weekend? I did. <laughs> was it like the most boring one you've ever seen or what? It's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. You know, it's funny. I watched some of it. We didn't get to watch the whole game because Keith had shot at a huge access buck and we couldn't find it. And so we all came back, ate, watched the game for a little bit, and then he had to back out to try to find it. So I caught probably half of the game and it sounds like I didn't miss much. No, you really didn't. Honestly, and even the halftime show. So here was, I was kind of surprised being in Atlanta. I figured there'd be some crazy show during halftime. Not to say it was bad, but I I didn't think it was that good of a performance and just the production of everything. I mean, I was kind of underwhelmed. So shooting at animals and you know, getting to get some meat to take away from that's probably even funner than watching yeah. the Super Bowl. So anyway, for all you NFL players out there probably listening, sorry you let us down. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of a backstory to the audience, kind of how we met. It was funny. We actually met when I was in Denver. I was yeah. about to work out. We were at Colorado Athletic Club and I was sucking back a pre-workout and you're like, hey, bro, what are you drinking? <laughs> and then the bromance started. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. it was kind of funny. That was a few years back. You still hitting the gym quite a bit or what? Yeah, you know, life with children, with a startup, I've kind of had to adapt. I, I still hit the gym. You know, I try to work out every day, but I basically put the gym in the basement so I can get up first thing in the morning, work out, and then head to work. And then that way, when I come home, I can be right on dad duty and not have to, you know, be leaving to go to the gym. So I still work out. Say my goals are much different than when I met you. I was probably, what, 25. Um, I'm a little different now at 30 than I was back then. And then, you know, I just don't have as much time as... You know, I think you and me met kind of after work hours, you know, the kind of typical young out of 
college guy, you, you go to work, you go to the gym after work, you work out till eight, then you eat dinner. That's kind of the environment we met under a little, little different now, a little different schedule for sure. Yeah, no, with kids and obviously a wife, everything priorities change. But I mean, you know, fitness and health are kind of the center of your universe, which they are with mine. So we definitely align on that front. <laughs> totally off topic but have, have you do you watch netflix i do did you see the fire festival documentary <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. what'd you think of that you know keith and i were talking about that because i kind of got him to watch it you know it's crazy it's horrible what the guys did but at the same time it's like this party that doesn't feel bad for these spoiled rich kids who spent 50 grand on you know staying in a yacht for a concert and so it's crazy i think it like plays into kind of how crazy our society is now where People just want to do things just to post on Instagram and, you know, it's all about exclusivity, but I just can't believe, I can't believe the guy pulled that, you know, pulled that off or I, I couldn't imagine, you know, spending that much money going down there, you know, you get a FEMA tent and yeah. it's just wild stuff like that can still happen, I guess. Can, people can still get scammed like yeah. that. Well, it's crazy because Billy, I forget his last name, McFarland or something like that. You got to be pretty twisted in the head to actually pull that off, be knowing you're just scheming and walk away from it. And then after that, he even tried to scam more people after it was all said and done, which is crazy. Where the people I do feel bad for are like the locals, like the lady who they interviewed, like the restaurant owner. I was listening to a podcast. So, you know, I've listened to the same ones called Mind Pump. Yeah. They interviewed Mark Weinstein. And so he gave his take on it, which was crazy. And sort of like the the stuff you really didn't get to hear about on the documentary, but talking about the locals and how like aside from the people who bought the tickets and expected to go down there and have the party of their life, so many people got like just completely, you know, they got hit real bad financially, especially the locals. And so there's like GoFundMe accounts for these people yeah. on the locals and, you know, but at the end of the day, I'm such a, I'm more of a jaw Rule fan now because he's just <laughs> such a genuine person. I can't believe it. <laughs> Well, you know what's funny is I can kind of identify with Billy and like biting off more than you can chew. Like I could see how you get to a point where you shoot for something really ambitious. Like I think in the beginning, like he had full intentions of, of doing this crazy music festival. I don't think when he set out, he set out saying, I'm going to scam people. He had this grand vision and then he just couldn't follow through. And at some point he probably should have said, hey, I, like we need to cancel this thing. I'm not going to come through. And and so he just got, he got in over his head and he kept going, going, going. And then, so, you know, like there was part of me, I was telling somebody, it was like, it's like, reminds me of, you know, back in high school or college and, and you like want to throw this party and you oversell it and then you can't, you can't come through. He just did it on the grandest stage. But, you know, I, I could kind of like see how you, he had this ambitious idea. It sounds great. He had this company he was doing and he thought it would parlay together. And then he just couldn't, he just couldn't follow through. And then he's over his skis and just didn't, didn't stop. Right. So from what I understand is the same thing as everyone was like, you know, stop, you cancel it, this yeah, and that. Yeah. But he was, he would have been out so much more money. I think all he was trying to do is at least break even and then paint this pretty picture hoping that everyone would yeah. still come and commit to it but apparently he's he's facing six years in jail and he's out i don't know how much there's a bunch of people filing for class action lawsuits and sure. it's a mess i'm sure he'll be dealing with it forever but i just thought that was hilarious there's a lot of hype around that right now so i wanted to ask you about it and you know what's funny is a few years ago one of the guys at my work showed me the promo video and 
that's probably the best marketing video I've yeah, ever yeah, seen. Yeah. I was hyped to go. Like, I, there was no way I was spending the money, but it was one of those things. If I had, I probably would have at least considered it. <laughs> like, that would have been right on my alley. No, no, I agree. <laughs> so, anyway, let's get going here. So, specifically regarding your current role, how'd you get in the oil field, and you know, what's the story getting you to where you're at now as a, as a vice president? I mean, you're 30 years old as a vice president. I mean. If that's not motivating enough for young listeners out there, I don't know what is. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you're at. Yeah. And, and I promise you, the title sounds way better than the day-to-day. <laughs> you know, I grew up in central Pennsylvania, right outside State College, right near Penn State University, which is where I went to school. I started chemical engineering. To be honest, we just kind of got pushed into engineering, me and my brother. It was kind of like, hey, you know, my dad read high salaries for engineers, you're going to go study engineering. Hey, go do this. And so I started chemical, kind of thought I wanted to do biotech. And then I actually ended up going to a Chevron info session. They were talking about all the cool stuff you get to do offshore, you know, the big floating rigs. And that kind of got me hooked. So lucky enough, and I think it's just fortunate, you know, Penn State's one of, I don't know, three programs in the Northeast that offer petroleum engineering. What are the other ones? I think Marietta. I think West Virginia. Oh, that's right. We got a, actually a guy that went to Marietta who's got a lot of, uh, he did petroleum at Marietta and I keep hearing that name, but I didn't know where it was from. Yeah, it's it, from up in Pennsylvania? It's like, uh, sub, I think it's Southeast Ohio. So it's pretty close to Pittsburgh. But again, you know, and this was before, you know, shale really took off. So I did some homework. I went to the petroleum engineering department. There were only like 20 kids in the whole department, which at a school of 40,000 kids at Penn State, it's kind of cool because you get the the benefits of a small college while being at a big college. And then two, because there's only 20 kids, industry donated heavy back to Penn State. So 20 kids, a bunch of scholarship money, basically kind of figured it out that I could transfer in with my grades, basically get school taken care of, and then you know go work at one of the big oil companies. So that was the goal, and that's kind of what I did. I graduated. I went to work at ExxonMobil in Houston doing drilling and completions. Got to see a little bit of everything from onshore. I worked offshore in the Gulf of Mexico, kind of two on, two off. I worked offshore California. But I always had my mind, I would go to Exxon, get the training, and then go to a smaller startup type deal. I always wanted to kind of do what I'm doing now. How did you know that? Because most people that get out of college don't understand that there's a life outside of the big operators out there. You know what I mean? Like there's the private equity, the small startups. I mean, how did you even know about that? So when I started petroleum engineering, I took Penn State actually offered history of the oil industry as a humanitarian credit. And so the whole basis of the class was based on the book, The Prize, which is a, is a cool book. I don't know if you've ever read it, I highly recommend it. The Prize? But yeah, The Prize. It's the history of the oil and gas industry. And there were all these stories, whether it's from Rockefeller or just, you know, a bunch of different guys in oil and gas, kind of self-made men, started a company, built it up and kind of built their empire. And it, it just always appealed to me. I think, you know, oil and gas and engineering is one of the few fields I know that you can kind of go start your own. There's a lot of entrepreneurial, you know, synergies in oil and gas that you just don't get if, you know, if you went and were chemical engineering and you work for Pfizer, like, you know, the likelihood of starting your own enterprise, probably pretty low. So that's just kind of what I had in my head. Now, granted at 21, you know, you think you know the world. So that's kind of what I went out and was shooting for. So basically started at ExxonMobil, did three years. I just wanted to get out, wanted to go somewhere other than Houston, opportunity came up in Denver. It was also really important for me at the time 
to get out of drilling and completion. So I wanted to do some production, see a little reservoir. I got offered opportunity at Samson Resources in Denver to do that. And then went for a, a small stand in a company called Emerald. That's where I met a reservoir engineer named Keith Engler, who is the CEO of Clear Creek now. And we just kind of built this rapport. At the time, I didn't know much about Keith. We were just the two guys kind of knocking stuff out at the company. And he was kind of one of the early mentors for me. And he laughed and said, hey, I'm going to go start Clear Creek Resource Partners. And I said, hey, you know, when you do it, call me up. I'd love to come. And that's kind of, you know, basically January 2017, we started opening the doors and I've been there ever since. Awesome. Well, that's quite the ride. So what made you decide to take a leap of faith and go with someone like Clear Creek? I mean, clearly there's always risk associated with a startup. Yeah. It sounded like you had a mentor. I mean, like what, what, what did you consider when making the decision? Because you were also at the time married, right? With yeah. one kid and, yeah. you know, you had obviously influence from your wife and you need what you needed the utmost support from. And I know Jesse and she's the most supportive lady I can imagine. It's great family. I mean, so what was the tipping point? At what point were you like, you know what, I'm doing this, I'm pulling the trigger? Because obviously most people just sit back in their comfort zone and there's the fear of whether it fails and, you know, they just start fear setting all this stuff. I mean, was there a certain pivotal point that you just decided to pull the trigger and that you and the family are like, you know what, we're doing this? Because there's obviously the risk yeah. associated with that. No, you know, I, I didn't think too much about it, to be honest with you. I think the one thing that downturn showed me visually I had a lot of guys a lot of friends of bigger companies that that just got like I, at the time i was at emerald and we were going through our own issues but because there weren't a large amount of engineers i could kind of be a utility man and so i think my thought had changed through the downturn that you know i think my conception was being at a bigger company was safer i think the downturn kind of showed me in some cases that's not always true like you know, at Conoco, you're a completions engineer. And so the minute the rig activity drops, they don't need a completions engineer anymore. And, you know, when I was at Emerald, when we dropped activity, yeah, we didn't need a drilling engineer anymore, but we didn't have anybody doing production. So I could kind of hop in and be more of a utility man. And so I kind of learned through that downturn that, you know, sometimes being at these small companies where you're the only engineer and you're kind of doing everything and being the utility man are in some cases safer. And so, I don't know, I think at the time, you know, I just kind of knew, well, no matter whatever happens with Clear Creek or the startup, I'm going to go, I'm going to learn a ton, I'm going to get a lot of responsibility. And so even if it doesn't work out, the experience I build will help kind of, you know, continue to, to build my resume and, you know, I'll land on my feet somewhere. So, and, and you're right, like I have a, amazing wife who is supportive of that. And so we just kind of jumped in. There wasn't a lot of, well, if this doesn't work out, what are we going to do? We just kind of said, hey, let's just jump in and go for it. So, nice. That's awesome. I love hearing that. I'm definitely the same type of person. I shoot first name later. I'm quick <laughs> to calculate risk and I typically just go for it. But it sounds like Clear Creek, you know, took a risk in yourself. And But by having the experience with Exxon, coming to Denver, you know, working at Emerald, working at Samson, you were... I guess somewhat of a jack of all trades, which gives you that well-roundedness to where you yeah. can kind of jump back and forth. And now with the role that you're in, you can identify when things are going right and things are going wrong to, because you haven't been pigeonholed in a certain discipline that adds extreme value to the company where you're at. So tell us a little bit about Clear Creek. I know recently you guys drilled a couple wells that were successful. I mean, I don't know what you can and can't say, but uh, tell us a little bit about Clear Creek and a little bit about the DJ and and how, you know, sort of what the plan is for you guys going forward. So we started with a focus on the Rockies. Our whole concept, our whole thesis was 
the time, all the activity was migrating to the Permian. And we felt like there'd be good Rockies-based assets that were getting overlooked and that folks would be trying to to sell, to bring more equity in, to support their Permian activity. That was the whole thesis. A lot of our experience was in the Uinta Basin and in North Dakota. It, it just so happened the deal flow got us into the DJ, the Northern DJ. We really liked it. It's funny. I mean, we started the company in six guys kind of thinking we'd get a couple DSUs, drill a couple wells, and that would be it. What is DSUs? A drilling spacing unit. So, you know, like your two-mile lateral is typically in a 1280 DSU. So that's 1,280 acres. So that's two sections. So, you know, we kind of thought we'd do something really, really small, drill a couple wells, sell it. Just so happened we liked what we initially bought. We started buying more, started buying more. Next thing you know, we had, you know, kind of 45,000 acres in, in an area we really liked with a lot of activity kind of starting up around us. And so, you know, in our part of the DJ, we're right on the state line of Wyoming, Colorado. You get out of a lot of the regulatory issues kind of going on in the heart of the DJ. It's more of a two bench play, kind of Nyerberg B, Codell, very low or lower GOR compared to the Wattenberg field. What's GOR? A gas to oil ratio. It doesn't have quite as much gas as Wattenberg. It's oilier. Frack techniques are, are kind of more in line with what goes on the Permian or North Dakota than what had typically been going on in the DJ. Okay. So, Let's uh, talk a little bit about that. So what typically happened or historically, how did they produce or, or complete versus what you guys are doing now? Yeah. You know, in Wattenberg, which is the core, like when people talk about the DJ basin, Wattenberg field is kind of what, what they're, what's typically referred to. Much higher GUR, a lot more gas, you know, obviously gas has what a 10th of the viscosity of oil. And so Typical fracks have been, you know, gel jobs, hybrid jobs. So you're using linear gel to place propent, higher sand concentrations, lower overall fluid volumes. Our neck of the woods, we was kind of underexploited. We felt like the traditional big slick water HVFR type fracks. It's kind of the cutting edge of what folks are doing in the Permian and what folks are doing in the Bakken could be, you know, brought up there stimulate a lot more rock volume and be able to produce the oil. And so that was kind of essentially what what we did. And, you know, we're, we're very early in the game. We've done two wells today, doing a third in May, but so far so good. Awesome. No, that's good. It sounds like you guys have definitely got things going in the right direction. What makes the DJ so attractive? I mean, in, with regards to other plays, because I know if you look at any news article, it's either talking about the Permian, the Marcellus, Utica, or the DJ, the Bakken. Because if I remember correctly from my time up in Denver, the DJ, you've got the Niobrara, which is somewhat of a limestone, and then the Codell is a sandstone. So Correct. it's not actually a shale, right? Correct. Yeah. So what, I mean, is there anything, any reason why that play is so attractive? You know, I think for the most part, costs are really, are, are pretty low. So your returns are, are pretty good. I mean, you know, it's a five and a half inch monoboard design. You know, we're drilling, you're basically setting surface casing at 2,000 feet, and then you're drilling the vertical curve and lateral in one run. So the, the wells are getting knocked down about, you know, some guys are doing them in three days, three to five days. That's insane. Yeah. That's that's 20,000 feet yeah. around there in like three days. Now, you're talking about like on bottom drilling time, or are you talking from spud to rig release? No, I'm talking spud to rig release. Wow. Some of the bigger operators, you know, we're not doing it. Uh, yeah, granted, when you, you have a two-well program, it's hard to have that much efficiency. So I think your costs are low. You know, you have multiple benches in a lot of areas. So in some areas, you have the Codel, you have the Niobrara C, the Niobrara B, the Niobrara A. 
So that stack pay people really like. You pretty good takeaway capacity from oil standpoint. So you can get oil to market pretty, you know, your net back is, is not very high. So there's that. All those things kind of make it, make it an attractive place to be. No kidding. So everyone's out there that's has anything to do with oil and gas probably knows about the proposition one was it 112 how did that affect you now obviously it didn't pass which we're all clapping for that but if that would have passed how would have that affected colorado oil and gas and even more specifically for you guys yeah it, it would have i mean it was essentially a ban on oil and gas the proposition was to to move setbacks from home schools and then a whole slew of other ambiguous areas to 2,500 feet, which essentially would have wiped out all new permitting. It, yeah, it, it would have, it would have banned oil and gas essentially. It would have wiped out the industry, which, you know, is a huge, you know, tax, you know, windfall for the state. It's big employer in the state. So it would have had, you know, really terrible consequences. Our neck of the woods is a little, a little bit more rural. We don't have quite the issues from setbacks that some guys down along the I-25 corridor have. But, you know, even for us, it would have probably impacted service quality. You'd have all your service companies leaving. Obviously, the fact the attractiveness of acquisition and divestiture, you know, activity in the basin. So, you know, it would have wiped out industry. Luckily, it failed. But I think as an industry, we've learned we, we have to be better advocates of the industry. You know, I think most of the campaign was around jobs. And I think, you know, I think the industry as a whole is starting to repurpose and kind of talk to neighbors, talk to the community at large about all the benefits of oil and gas, you know, the cheap, you know, just everything that impacts your life, cheap gasoline prices, all the plastics, all the oil products that are in your life. And so I think there's going to be more of an outreach to kind of say, hey, this is how impactful oil and gas is to your overall life. So that's kind of where I think things are heading. But again, there's probably going to be a compromise reach. I'd like to think there'll be a compromise reach, but by no means is this over. I think in two years when the next election comes back up, I'm sure there'll be another prop. And so getting out ahead of this, I think industry got caught off guard that the proposition made the ballot. And so a lot of it was reactive. I I think now we're kind of moving to more of a proactive, let's get out in front of this. Let's talk to the community. Let's tell them all the benefits of, of what we do. Gotcha. I know you said Clear Creek wouldn't have been impacted nearly as much as people sort of on along that I-25 corridor, but are there things that Clear Creek does for the community? I mean, I know you guys probably don't have the capital budget like for PR and this and that, like all the majors do, but I guess another question would be like, what are some of the things you said going out talking to the community? I mean, are there events, are there resources for people that are typically anti-oil and gas that can actually look for or look into? I mean, is there anything out there for people? No, there is. Colorado Oil and Gas Association, COGA, is very, very active from a PR standpoint, getting the word out. We're an active participant. We're a member. We're an active participant. Okay. I'll put the link in the show notes. I think it's important for people to at least look at it and see what's going on because the only thing you ever hear about oil and gas is on the media and they do a great job of just tarnishing us, like I mentioned in the intro episode. So it's good to at least, if there's websites or if there's events or something out there, always always make sure that we plaster that to where people can at least get educated before just making an assumption that we're all out here just to ruin the worth and... (laughs) Well, I think people are just misinformed. I think our CFO, Ryan Zorn, is kind of the spearhead for our company of kind of organizing the activity, the involvement in COGA, the kind of getting out to the community. 
he's kind of done this project on how many windmills would have to be placed in Colorado to you know be truly 100% green. Oh, no way. Do you know and, the number? Uh, essentially, it can't be done. There are all these maps that show kind of wind activity and where the sweet spots of wind, like where you could place windmills, where you can't. And essentially, it would cover, I think it covered the majority of the state from a surface area standpoint. You'd have to put windmills all over the state for them to, especially along the front range, in the beautiful views of the mountains, you'd have windmills to, to power that. So it's just kind of getting out there and, and you know giving people the facts is kind of showing them, okay, here's what 100% renewable would look like. And we, can't, we couldn't even get there anyways. And so it's kind of dismissing some of these myths about Okay, what's what's achievable and what's not achievable? Right. No, that's great, and and I gotta applaud Clear Creek for taking an active role in that as well. Another topic that comes up, especially in the Permian, is a lot of their drilling efficiencies are crazy. They don't have enough frat crews out there. Infrastructure's not quite there, so the duck count is increasing substantially. Is that a problem in the DJ? You know, I don't exactly know. It's not a problem for us. I I don't have a good pulse on what other operators in our basin are looking like. I think outrunning midstream capacity is a problem just across the industry. And I think there's definitely some of that in the DJ, which I'm sure impacts that duck count. But I don't know exactly how many ducks are sitting in in inventory right now. Interesting. Hey, I want to take a quick break. Everyone out there listening, please, if you could support me and support the rest of the show by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening to this on. I'd appreciate it. Any feedback would be great as well. Or if there's certain topics or people you want me to interview or reach out to, certainly want to make this a group effort. Now it's time for our sponsor giveaway. Tendek is known for its innovation in advanced completions and production optimization. And speaking of innovation, take a look at this. They've got a mini portable projector for all you techies out there. It's a mini LED projector perfect for home theater, boardroom, office, pocket video. And for your chance to win, head over to www.tendeka.com front slash podcast giveaway. And that's T-E-N-D-E-K-A. Let's talk about some announcements coming up. Well, we've got a number of different podcasts that have launched. We've got Oil and Gas Legal Risk Podcast. If you could, take a moment to listen and rate it and review it. Sarah does a great job of covering legal topics within the oil and gas industry. And let's take a look. We've got some happy hours coming up. We're actually looking for sponsors in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. We're looking to launch some OGG and happy hours up there. We're also looking for sponsors for the Midland happy hour. All these dates are to be determined, but listen to the podcast and we'll be sure to update you guys in the near future. Looking at some events, we've got the Produced Water Society Seminar for 2019. That's February 6th and 7th. It might already be on while this airs. We've got NAPE coming up February 11th to the 15th. That's here in Houston. Think 2019. Any listeners out there from San Francisco, that's happening February 12th to the 15th. So if you want to bring your Valentine's to a nice date, that would be the one. Energy Tech Night, Thursday, February 21st. That's here in Houston. We've got the SPE GCS Intercorporate Top Golf Tournament. That ought to be a good time. That's at Top Golf Katy, just on I-10. That's February 21st. And we also have the Innovation Entrepreneurship Symposium put on by SPE. That's happening February 27th, 2019. So we got a lot going on. Ian, before we sign off, I do have a couple more questions. So related to the DJ again, is there room for further 
reservoir and completion optimization. And by that, I mean, there's always numbers that associate, you know, your initial oil in place or how much reserves are in place. But from what I understand, there's a difference between how much is there and how much we can technically actually extract. So would you say you like the DJ basin is at that point where there's no like there's more for room for improvement? Is there not? I mean, where does that stand? No, I, I think there's always room for improvement on your recovery factor, which I think is is what you're getting at. I mean, I think there's a lot. You know, we're here at the hydraulic fracturing conference. I think there's a lot of interest nowadays in surfactant technology. So folks are out there pushing all kinds of different surfactants, whether they're anionic, cationic, nanoparticle. The theory being that these surfactants mixed in the frac water will help, you know, reduce interfacial tension or capillary pressure, help more oil come out of the rock naturally and flow. I think that's an interesting area. I think you're going to see more and more improvement on, and I think potentially will help kind of increase that recovery factor, get more and more oil out. I think that's going to be probably a, an area that, that you see kind of take off in the next couple of years to help improve that recovery factor. Okay. So that would be more from a chemistry standpoint. What about modeling? Are, are there different models that are coming out that are more accurate or is anything like that sort of being exposed at the conference, do you know of? or Not that I know of, but we're just getting started today, so I'll have to let you know if I hear some things. Yeah, sure. no, I'm always curious. All right, before we sign off here, Ian, so for all the listeners out there and, and more specific to the people that are doing oil and gas startups, what can these companies do to set themselves apart and be successful in such a competitive marketplace? Because I was, like I was saying, you have a handful of, of great plays, but you have hundreds of companies out yeah. there. Yeah, you know, I think one of our advantages, and it probably comes because I am younger in what I'm doing, and so I, I never feel like I figured it out. And I always kind of have a little bit of anxiety, like I don't have all the answers, and so I spend a lot of time talking to as many people as I can and reading as much as I can and looking outside of even what is going on in the DJ to kind of make sure I find the best answer. And so one thing I think that really works in our favor, probably because we are younger, is that. And I think, you know, my advice is just is not get too base and specific. I think a lot of the ideas that we've really leveraged that have been successful came from other plays. So it's from the Bakken, what folks are doing in the Bakken or what they're doing in the Permian and kind of brought them into the DJ. And so I think it's good to have base and experience, but I think it's also really important to look outside of your specific area as to what other folks are doing and does it have applicability for, for your basin. And I think, yeah, I think that's kind of what I'd be lying to you to say I figured it out and figured out the right code for a startup world. But I think that's definitely something that has really helped us. And I think we're going to continue to do as we grow the company. That's a great answer. I like that. So being a young VP like yourself, I mean, what does it take to succeed? And, and do you have any daily routines or habits that keep you focused and motivated to, to keep grinding every single day, be a parent, you know, be a good husband, make sure the company's running? I mean, what does it take, man? Yeah, I mean, I think the big thing for me is I just get up really early. I mean, <laughs> nice. you know, I, I'm up at 4.30. That's when I work out. I have to get it out of the way earlier. I'm not going to do it. It kind of is my coffee in the morning, set me up for success. You know, I'm big. Some of my early mentors had been big note takers, big journalers. And so I've kind of picked that up from them. I try to, the night before kind of schedule out the day, I kind of put, you know, three things on the list that I need to knock out the next day. And if I knock those out, I kind of chalk it up as a win. And if I don't, then it's a loss. And that's kind of what keeps me moving the ball forward. I think that's the big thing is you get 
too caught up in the bigger picture of the company. And then you kind of lose sight of just the little things you can do every day to get a little bit better. So my big thing is I jot three down and make sure I knock those out. And that kind of keeps me on instead of moving the ball forward. And then, you know, the big thing that I'd be lying to say I have work-life balance. It's tough. I'm always, you know, challenging myself and how I can get better with the family. It's just part of the, the startup that, you know, I'm lucky to have a wife who understands I'm going to be in the field a lot. But I do try when I get home, you know, I'll get home at six. I try to be home by six every night. I try to put the phone away when I come home until the kids go to bed, you know, around eight. And that's kind of just something I try to do to kind of build in some work-life balance. Those are kind of my daily things. Well, it sounds like it's working for you. Keep up the great work, man. It's great to see you succeed. Well, thanks again for joining me today. And for the listeners out there, real quick, we do have an OGGN happy hour here in Houston every last Tuesday of the month. Check out oilandgasglobalnetwork.com front slash events for more details. And thanks again for listening to Oil and Gas Onshore. If you're looking for more info, hit up oilandgasonshore.com. Ian, thanks again for joining me, man. If people want to reach out to you or get to know more about your company, are you on social media or on LinkedIn? I know you guys have a website, so that I'm going to put that in the show notes. If people are interesting or young, ambitious guys like yourself that were 25 hitting the gym at six o'clock at night, know they want to start, you know, start a company or do, you know, follow a similar path like you've done. If you've motivated people, can people hit you up on LinkedIn? Yeah, yeah, LinkedIn's probably the best place to get me awesome well i'll put your link in the show notes and again that's a wrap folks and always remember oil and gas on shore providing energy for the world through innovation one well at a time signing out cool thanks justin you bet tune in next week for another captivating episode of tendeka's oil and gas onshore podcast a production of the oil and gas global network learn more at oilandgasglobalnetwork.com and